Welcome back to another episode of The Silent Battle. I hope everyone is having a great week so far. Today is going to be a wonderful segment. Again, I'm your host, Erica Honeycutt, and today I will be interviewing Rena Scudder from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Mrs. Scudder's son, John, was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in 2016. However, in 2018, he was told he would need a double lung transplant. In 2020, he received the most precious gift, two new lungs from a selfless donor. Mrs. Scudder was John's primary caregiver during his double lung transplant process. Today, she is going to share with us what it was like being John's primary caregiver and shed some light onto the role of being a primary caregiver to someone who has had a double lung transplant. Let's get started. Welcome, Mrs. Scudder. Thank you for being part of the Silent Battle podcast today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Mrs. Scudder, can you again tell our listeners what the name of John's lung disease was and share with us regarding when this disease showed up in his life? Sure. He has idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is the thickening of the uh, scar tissue around the lungs. And he was also developing scar tissue in his lungs, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. And pulmonologists in Nashville suggested strongly that he uh, have his transplant then. Uh, He was treated by uh, Dr. Stephen Capizzi in Nashville for about a year and a half before Dr. Capizzi uh, discovered that the the, uh, adhesions were growing inside the lungs and he said that's a sure sign that he would be a candidate for a double lung transplant. We thought maybe he would just have a single lung, mm-hmm. but afraid the disease would pass from one lung to the other, so that's when they decided for him to have a double lung transplant. Okay, okay. <clears throat> and what symptoms did he have in the beginning before he was diagnosed with IPF? Well, John, first of all, John was a traveling bartender, and he traveled for about five, five and a half years. And that last year that he was traveling and working, uh, he spent more time in the emergency room than he did working. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his boss that we knew very well uh, called and and told us her concerns because John was not telling us because he didn't want to worry us because he was traveling so much and all over the country. And he was um, short of breath. Um, He was, his lips, his um, fingers, his toes were blue. He was running a fever. Um, uh, very, very, very weak. And he was beginning to lose weight. And uh, when he came home, uh, that's when we started the ball rolling. We did uh, a family physician, mm-hmm. took it there, and then he um, was diagnosed with some sort of lung disease. He didn't know exactly what because he was not familiar with pulmonary diseases. Right. And recommended a um, pulmonologist here in Murfreesboro, which I was very, very familiar with, Dr. Capizzi in Nashville. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had uh, treated my mother for um, pulmonary disease, oh, several years ago, Mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. And we were had our confidence with with his group 
And so I made an appointment, called on a Monday, and we saw him on a Wednesday and did the uh, test exams, and that's when he was finally uh, diagnosed. Well, really, John went through five diagnoses, and they finally decided on IPS. Mm. It was a long process. Yes. And um, very devastating. Uh, we have no idea where John developed this. Uh, no one in my family or my husband's family has, has any thing like this IPS. Mm-hmm. So we were just completely blindsided. Oh, yeah. I completely understand. Um, and when did the IPF take a turn towards John needing a double lung transplant? I know that you had said that... Um, you know, he had lesions inside of his lungs, and that's when um, they said that, or Dr. Capizzi had said that he would certainly qualify for one, but when did it take a turn that, you know, John needs a double lung transplant ASAP? All right, they did um, a bronchioscope, mm-hmm. and it, it Baptist in, in Nashville, where it was St. Thomas then, in Nashville with, with Dr. Capizzi, he, highly, he recommended it, and we went through that and they took film and they took samples and that's when it was finally diagnosed what he had. Mm. That's when they discovered also that the adhesions were growing inside the lung as well as on the outside. And that's when it was the IPF was incurable, of course, and that's when the, the recommendation was done for a double lung transplant. Now, you were John's primary caregiver uh, during his lung transplant. Um, uh-huh. What major responsibilities did you have in helping take care of him? Everything. Uh, at, well, even before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, he, I live in Murfreesboro. He lives about 45 minutes away. So I was on the road quite a bit doing grocery shopping, laundry, uh, making sure that he could take a shower mm-hmm. uh, and not fall or anything like this. Right. Um, house cleaning, um, everything that I could do. Grow, you know. And then I was also running my household as well, so it was back and forth. Um, but then when he really, really got sick and they uh, Vanderbilt, he was at Vanderbilt quite often with pneumonia, mm-hmm. and uh, I, we knew right there and then that um, we we had to prepare for something more serious and, and longer-lasting care. Right. So we uh, we well we had some situations at Vanderbilt that we ended up going to Kentucky, mm-hmm. and Kentucky said yes, he is a candidate for transplant. And then his his uh, pulmonologist in Kentucky said, uh, "You need to prepare very quickly." Mm-hmm. So I came home, and John was still in the hospital in Kentucky. And I came home, and I had a very very dear friend that uh, offered to stay with my husband because at that time we uh, still did not have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease for him, but we knew something was terribly wrong. And so she stayed with him. She cooked and uh, cleaned and washed after and did laundry and everything else while I was in Kentucky. But mm-hmm. we 
when I preparing for John's surgery, I started making casseroles, um, individual uh, casseroles so that my husband could just take them, pull them out, put them in the microwave, heat them up, and eat them up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made sure that that um, the house would run as, as smoothly as possible while I was gone. Right. And I did the same thing for John. I did I barbecued chicken and froze it and, and did small casseroles for him so when he came home before surgery, he could just pull things out of the freezer and put them in the microwave and eat them. Right. I was doing double duty. Wow. How did being a care, being, you know, John's caregiver affect you mentally? Oh, it was exhausting. Still, I was losing, I lost weight. Well, could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. <laughs> but uh, you never knew. Uh, after John's surgery, one of the things that they were just absolutely, I, we sat for two and a half hours before John had his surgery. Mm-hmm. And his, the diagnostic, the uh, nutritionist and I met with uh, dietitians and nutritionists and doctors and surgeons and everybody we sat there and they went over and over and over again and you've got to remember now this was at the very very beginning the rumors of COVID so here we had COVID creeping in California and marching to the east coast right and I had I had a patient that was had absolutely no uh, no reason to go out and be with people because we didn't know what was going to happen with COVID. Mm-hmm. And he had no immune system whatsoever. So we were fighting that. And then uh, <clears throat> with the possibility of surgery as well. So it was it was quite harrowing. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, it was just, you know, it was just precaution all the way. Masks were our best friends. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I, I made masks, I did, I, I sewed some, and I made uh, homemade masks before you could even purchase them. Um, I started making masks out of flannel and, and uh, so that I could wear them just in case, and we kept a supply of rubber gloves, and we did everything we possibly could mm-hmm. um, to keep down infections. I, I bought uh, antibacterial soap, and we soaked everything. I, I washed all my vegetables. We had to wash down all my, my uh, uh, cans that I brought in for cooking and everything else to make sure that, that we would not bring in anything that would interfere with John's recovery. So it was it was quite crazy. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it, you know, especially with COVID, you know, just kicking off around the same time that, you know, he's going through all of this with with the double lung transplant and you know I can't I can't imagine you know having both of those to to be you know worried about at the same time um, well, it was it was really scary because I was I was one of the few people that were allowed on the ICU unit mm-hmm. and for the first oh gee the first 15 days John was in double ICU mm-hmm. he was in a room that was used for uh, TB patients so when I went to see him, I had to be masked and gowned and, and uh, gloved and bootied and everything else yeah. because they did not know what in the world COVID was, what it was capable of. Mm-hmm. But I saw patients on ECMO machines and ventilators, 
And I had enough sense to know that they were fighting a very, very horrible virus. Yeah. That uh, it, it was frightening. It was truly frightening. And this was before they even had the inoculation. So those poor nurses, God love them. I mean, they they were right there watching John. They had he had uh, three transplant patients on the floor, mm-hmm. and they were. They were wonderful, and they still are. They still are, but it was it was hard for them. Yeah. And so I made sure that I did everything that I possibly could to, to ease their anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I thought everything I possibly could to help them out and uh, make sure that John was not exposed to anything that uh, he didn't need to be. What challenges did you face being his caregiver? Uh-huh. Well, the, the main challenge really was after his surgery when we had to live in a, a little hotel room with a kitchenette for eight weeks. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, we went through two snowstorms and two ice storms in Kentucky. Um, the only thing that was moving as far as traffic was was the, uh, the bus system in, in Lexington Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my four-wheel suburban, uh, everybody else was sliding off the roads and, and ending up in people's yards and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, and I had, as I said, I had a small kitchenette, so I could cook, and I had um, uh, a microwave, and I, I had access to a hot plate, mm-hmm. and cooking meals making sure that John could eat, making sure that he was eating high-protein meals, uh, and then the boredom uh, of being in a room for eight weeks was just very challenging. We yeah. watched a lot of movies. We had, uh, we played a lot of board games. Uh, he, we did a lot of, he, he loved to do word search because that kept his mind going. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of word search uh, books and uh, I read a lot while he was doing that because I am a reader. And so we we tried to entertain ourselves. And there was, you know, and, and making sure that he had 168 staples because uh, they did a, a, a type of surgery that I've never seen. Mm-hmm. But there were no ribs broken. There, the sternum was not broken. And uh, they went and cut the side muscles and ligaments and cut under his pectoral muscle and raised his rib cage and removed the, the uh, infected lungs and inserted his new transplanted lungs. Mm-hmm. So he had 168 staples, and so we had to make sure yeah. that those staples did not get infected. Um, when he was able, he took a shower and uh, made sure that, that we used... Uh, an antibacterial soap for that, and we just had to watch everything. His the drain holes were already closed up, so we didn't have to worry about that. But it was um, the recovery of, of of his surgery. Oh yeah. So it it was quite harrowing, and the uh, the snowstorms and the ice storms uh, were horrible because we were afraid that we would we would go without electricity, which we never did. But uh, it was it was quite kind of a, a, a very 
disturbing time there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can't. But we made it. We yeah. made it. We we learned to laugh it, and we started watching people. The the hotel where we stayed mm-hmm. was wonderful. They gave us a hospital rate, so they did not charge us full rate for uh, the stay, and they gave us a hospital rate, which. Thank heavens, John had Obamacare insurance, yeah. and that provided us with uh, monies to stay there and uh, covered all expenses of food and lodging, and we even got gasoline money. And uh, friends sent us uh, uh, gift cards so we could go and shop at Kroger. And and uh, I mean, we we had a, I, we have a wonderful support group. That's amazing. That, Got John through, yeah. That's amazing. They still are. They still are great. And that was actually what was going to lead me into the next question about how was your support system? Because, you know, I asked this because not only did John need support from family and friends, but you as his caregiver needed support as well. Yeah. uh, I have a wonderful Sunday school class that uh, we call them the prayer warriors. They do not take no for an answer. And they and we all believe that all of our answers are done um, through knowledge, but also through prayer. Mm-hmm. And I have two good groups. One is my, I'm a retired teacher here in Rutherford County, and uh, I have one group of ladies that I talk with, and uh, I also have some of the ladies in that group I taught their children. And by George, they are the most ferocious group of ladies I have ever come across. They, I would get messages at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, I, I've got to think what's going on. You need a prayer. And I would say, yes, it's, it's, it's a bad day. And she said, we're on it. We've got, it. We've got everybody divided up, and we've, we're going to be there for 48 hours. Things like that mm. um, really help. Uh, John and I were talking about this yesterday. Uh, because my friends that I grew up with, because as I said, I have lived in Murfreesboro all my life, mm-hmm. so I still have lunch with my friends from elementary school. Mm-hmm. So that is part of my support group, and then <clears throat> other friends that I have grown up with. And uh, I don't, I know that I can call and ask them for anything, and they'll, they're right there. They, they'll do it without any questions or they'll say I'm sorry but you can call so and so I've already talked to them and they can do it or you know if my husband had a doctor's appointment and I was in Kentucky I could call and say Ron needs to go to Nashville he's got an appointment with with his neurologist and they'll say we're right on it no problem don't worry about it we've got it taken care of I mean they they are still that wonderful and uh, it's it's imperative that you have that type of people. Absolutely. Not the ones that say, oh, we'll just ask and we'll do it. But I mean, honestly, we'll be there for you mm-hmm. so that you don't have to worry because you're 200 miles away. And that's what really, really helped. And I I, I couldn't say thank you enough to those these friends because they're still there. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's a blessing to have friends like that in your life. Oh, it is. I and they know it. They know that that I would do the same thing for them. And uh, I, uh, 
I'm truly grateful and blessed to have him in my life. What do you think is most important for our listeners that are battling lung disease and facing lung transplant to know? Number one, don't give up. That although it is scary to have a transplant, Mm -hmm. and you've got to remember, and I I have a very dear friend that her husband had a heart transplant Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, and she said, remember now, your life is not your own anymore. Your life is going to be different, but enjoy the difference, number one. Enjoy each day. You're going to have good days. You're going to, and don't call them, John doesn't call his days bad days. He calls them character building days. Mm-hmm. Find another phrase that is not so negative saying, okay, it's going to be a character building day. I'm going to stay in bed today and not do anything or just do as little as I can. And tomorrow's going to be better. I'm going to, it's going to be a better day because I'm going to make it a better day. But don't give up. Number two, you can always fire your physician. If you're not comfortable with them, go find a physician that supports you, your support team, and that understands and does not argue but listens to you. Mm-hmm. That's one of the main things. And then if you, we had a, a situation when we were not, did not stay in Nashville, but we went to another hospital because we knew that he had the support there as well in, in, this, in the transplant clinic. You've got to have that support team as well. So mm-hmm. you've, got, you've got six or seven different groups that are there with you at all times. John's nurses call at least twice a week to see how he's doing. And that's from Kentucky. That's wonderful. Yeah, you, you've really got to have a true good, dedicated support team. And Mm -hmm. I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, It's not just lip service, but it's true service. Right. You've got to have. People who actually really do care. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. They are dedicated to that, to their profession, and they're dedicated to that patient. Do you have anything else that you want to share or add to today's segment? Well, going through transplant, it's been, you can't feel guilty about your donor. You, you've got to praise and thank the donor family mm-hmm. because they, given, they have given you a second chance. But once that transplant is done, those are your lungs. They have given you those lungs or the kidney or the liver or now they're doing pancreatic transplants, which is for diabetes. It is now yours for you to take care of and to guard and treat it as a gift of life. It's a second chance. Absolutely. don't abuse it. I, I know of, of people that have gotten transplants and they turn right around and keep on doing the same thing they were doing before they had the first transplant. And it doesn't work that way. You're not going to enjoy life because your body's going to break it down. You've mm-hmm. got to take care of your transplant. 
and be grateful to the family that did this gift for you. Yes. And, you know, just, you've just got to take every day, a day at a time. And John told me something the other day, that, and it never occurred to me, but your body is now holding two different sets of DNA. Mm -hmm. and, and your body is having to adjust to that second set of DNA. And it's, it's um, quite hearing how the body works because sometimes it accepts it well and other times it's not happy having this foreign host in your body. Right. And it takes a while for that DNA to settle down. So that was something that I had never thought about. Yeah. But um, it, it, it makes so much more sense now mm -hmm. that uh, when you have your days and, and you have the aches and pains and, and, and uh, the, the uh, upsets, tummies, and all this that, we're, that you have to deal with sometimes because it's the, the, the body, the host body, having to uh, accept a new set of DNA. Right. And he's absolutely right about that. Um, you know, and that's one of the reasons why, or that's the main reason why we take the medicines that we do because, um, it, you know, it tricks our bodies into accepting, um, the new lungs right. because they're foreign, you know? Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's like having a splinter in your finger and, you, and, and, and it gets infected. Well, we don't have the infection, but we've got the irritation of, of, of the foreign body, and and, and uh, it, it's uh, it can be quite harrowing, as I said. It, it can be interesting how the body reacts to it. Yeah. But all in all, as my son said, because he had his uh, transplant at the very, very end of 2019, he had it at December the, the 18th, and then woke up. They put him, his transplant doctor put him in an induced coma. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't wake up until December the 25th. And so, uh, and they did that uh, primarily for pain. They did not want him to go through uh, the pain element for that first week. Mm -hmm. So the doctor called me and told me that they were putting him in an induced coma. And I, I was fine with that. I was very familiar with induced comas. And I said, I think it's the best thing in the world. Just let him sleep that week so he will not have to be worried about every time he turns over or when the nurses turn him over uh, for pain, then right. he will be in that coma. He won't realize it. So that's how he did not get pneumonia right after transplant. And that's another thing. There's a, uh, people do not realize that pneumonia is very, very common uh, if you're not turned, if you're every, I would say every four hours, mm -hmm. if you're not turned, pneumonia is very common with trans, uh, lung transplants. So that's why the uh, doctor put him in an induced coma so that they could turn him every four hours and he not get pneumonia. And then when he woke up and he was able to move around, he developed pneumonia anyway. Mm. But it wasn't as, as serious because he could uh, move around himself and uh, clear his lungs and cough and whatever. Right. But it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a process. It really is a process, but you've got to have good communication with your caregiver and the patient. Right. And that's enough. Um, 
the caregiver will be exhausted. I remember distinctly one time, John, we were in Kentucky and it had, we had just had our second ice storm. Mm-hmm. John was, he was feeling much, much better. He was up, the staples were finally out. He was moving around. He was walking about 10,000 to 15,000 steps a day. Um, and he was, but he stayed in the hotel room because we had the storms. Right. And he came in the room one day and he put his hand on his hip and he says, Mother, I love you dearly, but if you don't get out of this room and we get away from each other for at least two hours, I'm going to rip your head off because I can't do this anymore. I've got to have some quiet time to myself. <laughs> and I would thank God because I said, I'm not ready to absolutely walk you upside the head as well. So I said, he said, get in the car. He said, I know there's a sale somewhere. Go find it. Go find a sale somewhere and go shopping. <laughs> so I did, which was really nice. <laughs> but you've got to have this humor. You've got to have this understanding. And you've got to start cutting off those apron strings. You've got to start letting them be it. You're no longer their main caregiver. You've got to let them find out for themselves what they can and what they can't do. And that's the hard thing because you've been caring for them for so long, mm-hmm. you're scared to let them go and scared to let them make some decisions and you've got to let them do it. And right. that's the hard thing. Right, because that's you have to get back to, to life at some point, you yeah. know, that transplant you, patient exactly. does. Exactly. You've got to turn that, turn it over back to them. And uh, it's hard. It really is hard because... You're so used to taking care of them for so long, and then all of a sudden, you know, they don't need you as much. Right. Well, it sounds like that you are an amazing mother and that you were oh. definitely an amazing caregiver to John. <laughs> well, it was, I had good training. My mother was in the medical field, and when I was small, uh, she started she started out training as a nurse and went into from there she went into the laboratory and she was in the laboratory for 40 years but she said every mother every dad needs to learn home nursing skills so she started showing me and and, and training me when I was little I was about nine ten years old and I learned how to do home nursing. So I knew how to take care of wounds. I knew how to change linen when a patient was still in the bed. I knew how to give bed baths and things like that that came to fruition later on in life with John. Mm-hmm. And so have the patience because Lord knows you need patience with, with a transplant because they can be very irritable at times because they get either they feel so horrible and they're not good or they're despondent. They don't think they'll ever get well or they don't think they'll ever get better. Yeah. And it's, there's, there's a lot of, of uh, uh, feelings there that you cannot take it personally. You just got to sit there and say, look, get off the pity party. You're going to get better. So let's just have today mark it off as a lousy day and let's just look at tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And you got to be honest with them. And you've got to be patient as well. But I learned that a long time ago because 
I was an educator and I learned patience a long time ago. Yeah. So, yeah. But you just, you just got to be patient with them and understand and say, hey, I've got my child another day. Whereas John was so sick uh, before he had his, his transplant, the doctors told us he had 30 to 60 days. So he had, you know, after his transplant, we had we were given extra days, and extra weeks, extra months, and now extra years. Yes. So that's the way we get it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And Miss Gutter, again, I just want to say I appreciate you uh, oh. so much for coming down here today and, and just oh, sure. allowing me to interview you. Oh, absolutely. Listen, I, I support anyone that, is going, that has either gone through this or is going to go through this. Um, I'm more than willing to help and, and give anybody ideas of what, what we found at work and uh, the, the, it, it's just a, a miracle for transplants anyway. And um, just, it, it's hard because when you're so sick, you don't think there's any way that you can feel better. Mm-hmm. And with a transplant, you're given that, tra- that, that chance of feeling better. Yeah. And coming back and, and doing and enjoying life again. Absolutely. Not necessarily what you did before, but back enjoying life again. Yes. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I know this interview really educated and helped a lot of listeners out there. And remember, if you out there have any questions or comments, please email me at thesilentbattle2022 at gmail.com. Again, that's thesilentbattle2022 at gmail.com. And always remember, life is tough, but so are you. Everyone, have a great rest of the day, and thank you again so much, Miss Goddard. Oh, you're more than welcome. Love to do it. Maybe we can do it again. Absolutely. You have a great day. Thank you, dear.